Welcome to Let's Talk Sustainability, the Mazars podcast series that explores the evolving sustainability landscape for businesses. In each episode, we hear from experts on a range of environmental, social, and governance issues as they share best practices for building solid sustainability strategies and identify varied and valuable opportunities for businesses. Welcome to our podcast on sustainability reporting. Uh, I am Emmanuel Thierry, and I'm a partner with Mazars Paris Sustainability Team. I will be joined today by Dr. Kim Schumacher, who is an associate professor in sustainable finance and ESG at Kyushu University in Japan. Until recently, he was a lecturer in sustainable finance and ESG at the Tokyo Institute of Technology. Dr. Schumacher is also a member of the GRI's Sustainability Standard Board, GSSB. He earned his PhD in in environmental science at the University of Tokyo after receiving a master's degree at the University of California, Berkeley. He is the author of the study Sustainability Reporting in Asia or the EU's Initiatives, the benchmark for ESG disclosure in the region. Dr. Schumacher, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me and it's a pleasure to have worked with you. Thank you. Today, we will discuss sustainability reporting in Asia following the release of our joint research project in partnership with the Tokyo Institute of Technology. This study focuses on whether the EU's initiatives may form a benchmark for ESG disclosure in the region. Maybe first, Dr. Schumacher, the EU has clearly been at the forefront of ESG reporting regulations in recent years with taxonomy, CSRD, CF3D, CFRD, to name just a few. Are you now expecting EU regulations to be launched in the next few years, or do you think we are reaching the end of a lawmaking period? That is uh, is a very interesting question, because I think what the report also has shown is that the current set of regulations in terms of sustainability uh, reporting regulations and directives, they were actually preceded by previous uh, directives and other regulations already prior. However, the current set is actually a strengthening and it's actually like going further than the previous one. So I do not think it is the end of the road. I think we are currently at an intermediate step where there's still some back and forth between like how much sustainability reporting, especially mandatory sustainability reporting, is too much in terms of like for companies for different stakeholders. And that is also, I think, what politicians and especially the EU is currently sort of evaluating. But uh, there's also different areas that need strengthening. One very clear one is the EU's emission trading scheme, where we'll likely see also developments uh, and probably adjustments with the current energy crisis. And then another one is uh, financial supervisors. The European Central Bank the European Banking Authority and the European Securities and Market Authority, they were actually tasked with uh, developing new like uh, sustainability reporting uh, guidelines and also standards in for the financial sector. And those right now, I think we will see a new set, especially in terms of central banking, uh, moving forward where new regulations and directives are on the horizon. So I do not think it's the end of the road. It is actually just an intermediate step to more stringent regulation, I think, further down um, uh, the horizon. Thank you very much. 
The concept of double materiality appears to be a cornerstone of the current EU approach. Could you briefly remind us what it entails and tell us how this concept is being understood and accepted in Asia? Do Asian companies in, in practice use double materiality in their ESG reporting and communication? Do regulators introduce or expect to introduce it in their regulatory framework? So double materiality actually uh, entails an additional component to the regular financial reporting. So that is what you usually understand with single materiality. It's evaluating financial risks and then basically reporting those risks uh, in annual reporting, uh, corporate, uh, in corporate reports. However, double materiality goes further because it does not only look at the uh, financial risks. So, for example, in terms of sustainability reporting, the impact of climate and environmental issues on a company's financial balance sheet, but also the other way around, it looks at how do companies actually impact society and the environment via their activities. So it is basically, although the term is not fully correct anymore, what we call non-financial, the non-financial component. So basically anything that goes the other way. So a company's activities, how do they impact the commons, the society at large and the environment? In Asia, there is already uh, in some areas and some companies already integrate that approach because there's something called the Global Reporting Initiative and the Global Reporting, the GRI standards, that's sort of like yeah, a, a voluntary standard to report, uh, for companies to report their sustainability impacts and their risks. And that standard or those standards already integrate the what we call also impact materiality besides financial materiality. So, those companies, so some companies will use GRI in there for their sustainability reporting, already utilize it to some extent. However, it is not mandatory in Asia. And currently governments do not necessarily consider it or embedding it in law in a mandatory way because it is considered extremely, not only costly, but also it requires a lot of resources it requires verification and uh, it, it extends the dimension of reporting in a significant way because now you basically need to do certain impact assessments to see what is my company's impact on society and on the environment. So lawmakers and decision makers in Asia currently consider it too, it requires too many resources and it actually could give it a competitive disadvantage. So. Yes, some companies already apply it, but currently it is not considered, uh, at least in a mandatory way, to be entrenched in, in a lot of legislation across Asia. In the study, you have interviewed various stakeholders from Asia, from Europe. Could you tell us about some of the views they shared on the influence of European standards on the current development of Asian regulations? So the, from the experts that we, and the, from different stakeholders, from academics to business leaders, those we, uh, that we interviewed, uh, both from Europe and from different Asian countries, is that they both acknowledge that there's significant changes, especially happening in Europe. And there's an acknowledgement that there's sort of a trend towards uh, double materiality. However, there's also an acknowledgement that in Asia, it's not necessarily uh, practicable in the near future. And that currently a more layered approach might be the more sensible one 
for a lot of jurisdictions in Asia. And one thing that has been mentioned a lot, so we have the GRI approach and Europe pretty much uh, applies that approach is the double materiality approach. However, there's another framework that is currently in development, which is the ISSB, the International Sustainability Standards Board. And they are mostly applying a single materiality approach right now. So more focused on financial, uh, on financial materiality, financial risks stemming from climate change and from other sustainability-related issues, and not necessarily looking at the impact side. And that is something that um, currently experts are thinking is probably the more practicable way in Asia, at least from in the near future. Uh, although some business leaders that, uh, that we interviewed and some experts, they already tried to go a little bit further by also partially integrating the GRI approach. So on a voluntary basis, some companies, especially those with large international exposure, are already trying to integrate the double materiality approach to some extent, especially with significant activities in Europe. However, uh, in the near future, a lot of uh, experts think that the ISSB approach, so the, uh, the single materiality approach, is likely the one to prevail at least in the short term in Asia. Dr. Schumacher, the latest version of the CSRD has attracted the attention of global regulators to the concept of equivalence between ESG reporting frameworks. What do you think will be the key criteria to consider equivalence and which Asian countries are likely to attain equivalence? And what do you see as the key hurdles to be overcome? In other words, are there any country you expect to qualify in the short term? To basically give a short response, in the short term, no, because one of the key hurdles is what we just discussed prior is the double materiality approach. So uh, the EU is fully betting on that approach, as we also seen in the in the latest drafts that they, they published and which we also discuss in the report. And in there, it is it becomes very clear that what we call the impact materiality, so also reporting on your impacts on society and the environment, is something that is required. However, other jurisdictions in Asia, but also the United States, they go a different path and they focus at least in a, in a first instance on single materiality. So this, like, yeah, divergence of sorts and the equivalence required under the CSRD is a key hurdle for those jurisdictions that have significant activities because the equivalence basically just means that if you are have significant activities, even as an internationally operating or like being headquartered outside of the EU, but if you have significant undertakings in the EU, and we go more into the details in the report, but the thing is if you have branches of subsidiaries in the EU, those branches and subsidiaries will need to report on their impact materiality and on the uh, different elements like uh, and how they affect society and the environment. So what I see is that this equivalence currently is not matched necessarily by the current state in Asia. However, as we also discussed in the report, Some countries are thinking of making some elements in their reporting, in their sustainability reporting, mandatory. And also, they cover parts 
of what is like yeah, what the EU requires in terms of sustainability reporting. Although mostly still focus on fin on financial materiality. However, since some companies already apply also the GRI or what is currently called the two pillar approach, so not only focusing on the single materiality as is currently developed by the ISSB, but also impact materiality, so the, the non-financial portions is uh, as already covered by the GRI and also now entrenched in law by the EU. So there's companies who would already comply However, if we talk on a jurisdictional level, like on a country level, on a legal level, currently no jurisdiction is like yeah, at that level yet, as is uh, would be required under in uh, the equivalence provisions of the EU. ESG reporting obligations in Europe are expected to start covering a large spectrum of entities and organizations with the lowering of the thresholds for mandatory reporting. Yet uh, in Asia, it seems this is very much limited to entities active on capital markets. How do you interpret this difference? And do you see any chance that mandatory ESG reporting could be expanded to smaller entities in Asia? I think in Asia, one of the key reasons why currently we see sustainability reporting mostly limited to large entities is simply the requirements of the international institutional investor community, who because they are either based in the EU and especially ESG investing is very, the largest parts are concentrating in Europe with the higher demands for data, for information, for transparency in Europe, but also in parts of the United States. There's just, and since those are like internationally traded companies, so they have sort of a reason, a rationale for already producing that kind of data. However, the further we go down in the supply chain, and since a lot of internationally operating companies, also those headquartered in Europe, have suppliers based in Asia, but since Asian countries, and even the EU only recently covers small and medium enterprises, so that means that there's a large blind spot in terms of like, yeah, just reporting. And for the reasons that we mentioned before, the cost, the need for expertise, for resources, in order to collect data and then to put it in a proper format, that is currently one of the key barriers why we do not necessarily see the same level of reporting and the same quality of reporting across uh, a large part of uh, small and medium enterprises in Asia. So there's simply not currently not that pressure to, to, to deliver that data. However, as we move along, and since larger entities now also need to report more granular and more qualitatively solid data that could also lead to suppliers now being asked more questions by large entities on providing more granular data. And that could then also lead to a development that we will see more sustainability reporting further down the supply chain. Your study talks about the transposability of EU reporting regulations. Beyond influence and the enactment of new regulations in Asia to attain uh, equivalence, how may ESG reporting obligations filter through to companies in Asia? Is the CA3D uh, a response and an effective driver of ESG best practices? Will the CSRD create such a reporting requirement on scope 3 organizations that mechanically many Asian companies will be producing ESG data to keep their European clients? Mm. So you mentioned the CS3D. So the CS3D stands for new directive that the EU has established in order to cover also supply chains. 
be it in terms of uh, transparency, in terms of corporate governance, because as was mentioned, the previous regulations and directives do not necessarily cover supply chains. And, and that is one of the, the, the current blind spots in terms of getting reliable sustainability reporting. And we will see in terms of reporting that scope three is currently one of the key issues. And it's, it's, it's one of the main how do I say it, barriers or hurdles in terms of properly assessing not only climate impacts, but also general environmental impacts and societal impacts. And I think the CSRD is one of the key foundations to establishing that. But I also think that it does not necessarily have cover or the scope is not broad enough to cover supply chains at this stage because it's primarily addressing the the companies themselves and where the data comes from in terms of supply chain level and also the impacts and the risks related to supply chains are not necessarily covered and it's not necessarily the purpose of the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive. So the corporate supply chain directive acts sort of like as an add-on, as a very necessary add-on in order to like cover any impacts, but also the data and the transparency that is needed to assure quality sustainability reporting. So I think they need to work in tandem. And one of, one of the key uh, elements is also the taxonomy. So basically this uh, catalog of what constitutes a green activity or sustainable activity So they all need to work in tandem. They all need to work together. And only if they work together, then we can actually achieve the ultimate goal, which is more transparency across the entire value chain. So from companies headquartered in Europe and then also further down all the suppliers from upstream to downstream to see what is the actual sustainability impact but also what are the risks, climate risks, environmental risks that companies are probably more exposed to in the future. So those regulations and directives work in tandem. They need to work together to cover the entire spectrum of sustainability. Thank you. My, my last question to you today, you are rightfully very active in denouncing greenwashing in ESG reporting. With the CSRD, ESG reporting in Europe is subject to mandatory audit with a limited scope and then a reasonable assurance scope. How do you think a good audit of ESG reporting can be conducted so that the reporting is in line with the standards? And what kind of key experts will need the auditors to conduct this audit? Also, audit of corporate reporting may not fully cover everything. They certainly represent an important step forward in the gradual improvement of the reliability of ESG reporting. What other areas of sustainability do you think would benefit from more auditing? So I think that is, that is an important point uh, because the thing is greenwashing is a very broad area and you talked about expertise. And one of the things that I publish a lot on is co what I call competence greenwashing. It's so basically presenting yourself as an expert in something without necessarily having the proper track record or credentials to basically assume such a role. And that is, that is what we're happening, what we see happening a lot across, for example, sustainable fines and ESG investing, where sometimes people become experts in sustainability or biodiversity or climate overnight, seemingly. And that is one of the key risks. However, as we also discussed in the report, There's actually some guidance already out there. So, for example, by the IAASB, which is the International Auditing and Insurance Standards Board, which already described to some extent 
what is necessary because they also acknowledge that not necessarily everything in the traditional auditing, financial audits or so, has necessarily that type of expertise to conduct such sustainability audits or like ESG audits because not everyone is a biodiversity expert, not everyone is a climate expert, not everyone is uh, an ecology scientist or an environmental scientist. And now being faced with a lot of information, a lot of data, which falls into those categories, like those natural science categories, or, or sometimes like their yeah, social science categories that are sometimes very complex in terms of uh, just subject matter, that is something that can be covered either by internal training, so basically identifying and upskilling people within organizations already that have these skills, because a lot of audit firms already have, for example, absorbed certain talent in the past, just currently not necessarily dedicated to non-financial audit tasks. But you have people with, for example, chemists, physicists, you have different types of expertise already inside. Would it be enough to cover the entire spectrum and also the quantity of auditing on the horizon? Probably not. So you need to also develop internal resource, internal capacities, but not necessarily at all times that is possible. So another thing that the IASB is also recommending is to work with external experts. And I think that is goes in the direction of this report or this collaboration that produced the report that we're now discussing, because it, it has, I think, what I call cross-pollination or win-win effects, because not only does it help the people from the audit community and from the assurance community to gain more insights into like yeah, the non-financial elements, but on the other hand, it also gives people from, for example, with natural science, from the research community, further insights into a world of financial reporting that they might not have been familiar with. And based on that, those collaborations then set the foundation, for example, in the future, if an audit firm requires an expert, then they already have a database or they have, for example, ways to reach out to the experts with the necessary expertise sometimes cover some of the more complex areas in uh, that they would be f uh, confronted with in ESG or sustainability. So I think those are some of the key paths. Just to summarize, scale internal capacities, additional hiring, but especially interdisciplinary teams are very important. And then build collaborations, build bridges with the experts, uh, with the topical and the disciplinary experts that you can reach out to when you need that extra level of expertise to cover the most complex of situations. I think that would be my recommendations in order to address the new challenges that audit and assurance community is faced with, with these new sustainability reporting requirements. Dr. Schmaler, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for joining us for Let's Talk Sustainability. To keep up with this series, subscribe on your favorite podcast app or go to Mazars.com.